A few years ago, I read a book that um, was very helpful in thinking about walking into a day, regardless of what that day might bring. The name of the book is Invisible War. It's by a guy named Chip Ingram. I've probably mentioned it before over the years at some point or another, but um, basically Chip's idea is that um, we are in the midst of a spiritual war. And I hope that after this morning, you will believe that with all of your heart. But you know, there are days when it can, you can kind of be consumed with the physical, the, the tangible, the concrete around you and be so fixated on that that you can forget that there's this whole other realm, the unseen realm that is going on all of the time, 24-7, never stops. And that in the midst of that realm, there is a battle going on. And you and I aren't exempt from that battle. And part of what Chip was trying to say is, you've actually been called into that battle. And the scriptures really give us some great instruction about how to fight that battle well. So the reality is, we were born into war. Whether you believe it or not, or think it or not, or realize it or not, that is a reality. And we live behind enemy lines, so to speak. So it's not even like we're in our own little camp and we're removed from that. It literally is like you got dropped in behind where the enemy is actually in control. Let me offer you a few passages to maybe think about not only this morning but even in uh, the weeks ahead. First John 5 19 says this, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Did you know that? Ephesians 6 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, although it feels like it often, doesn't it? We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is as real to Paul as anything else he ever encountered in his life. He's absolutely convinced of that, and he's inviting us to be convinced as well. 1 Peter 5.8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So you and I have an enemy, and that enemy is unseen, but very, very real. And that enemy and his host are absolutely devoted to destroying your life. And so if you somehow feel uncomfortable with that or feel some fear about that, I get it. Totally understand. But you and I can't just check out of that as if it doesn't exist because denying that or dismissing that doesn't make it go away. And it doesn't make it any less real. So... If you were dropped behind enemy lines in a very literal 
conflict in a battle of some kind, you would be thinking about how do I survive? How do I live well in this kind of environment? And today's passage is really going to help us face this adversary that we have and actually flourish even within a context of spiritual warfare. And I I just want to say this. I want to make sure you understand. I I realize there are teachings and, and teachers out there that make spiritual warfare into this crazy, weird, mystical kind of who knows what. And that's not what we're doing today. What we want to do is just say, biblically, this is real, and we're not a victim, but we have been called into battle, and there are very clear instructions about how we are to go about doing that. So let's answer this question with Paul, how do we live well as Christ followers behind enemy lines? And the first thing that we need to do, and this is a daily thing, you don't get to do this one time and then put it off for 10 years. We need to live daily with a wartime mentality. Now, I wasn't alive at the time, but in the, in the great wars, if you were alive at that time, you would say some very significant things changed in our, in our country. See, we were in peacetime, you know, it's, it's capitalism, it's prosperity, it's like I'm going to make life as good as it can be right here where I live, and that's great. But you know what? When war was declared, everybody said, I can't escape this, and I'm going to have to adjust my life because my country and the whole world is at war, and that's going to change things for me. I can't just kind of live like I used to. I have to live differently. So we have to maintain a wartime mentality. And because we're talking about a spiritual war, it's so easy to uh, slip into that peacetime mindset. In other words, if my circumstances are fine, if everything is going well, I'm making good money and paying my bills and eating well and got a car and a house and a job. When I got all that kind of stuff, I can just sort of sit back and just kind of cruise. But you would never do that behind enemy lines, would you? That's reality. So let's see what Paul says to us given our context. Verse 13 of chapter 16. We're wrapping up 1 Corinthians. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So five commands, four of these happen to be military metaphors. So we wouldn't necessarily just know that by reading them, but Paul is most definitely, in light of the war that he's aware of, he is using military language to call them into action. And the first thing he says is, be watchful. The idea is being on the alert, being vigilant. And once again, if, if, you're, if you're in peacetime and everything's going great, like you just might snooze on the back, you know, backyard, by the pool or something, right? 
you're not going to be thinking about an enemy. But if you're in the middle of a jungle and you know that you are surrounded, you're going to be in a different frame of mind, aren't you? You're going to be attentive, vigilant, always watching what's going on around me and then responding appropriately to that. So Paul is saying you've got to avoid carelessness and complacency. How is your spiritual security system? Is it intact? Is it active? Are you doing anything to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus? If not, you are vulnerable. You're just waiting to get picked off by the enemy. Matthew 26, Jesus said this, watch and pray. He said this to his disciples, who, by the way, I don't think they really appreciated the warfare that was going on around them. But he said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, Paul says, let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Paul said, or Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful, echoing what Paul has said here. He mentions the adversary, and then he says on the backside of that in verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. So again, we're not victims. We can wage war here. But it, it takes a lot of intentionality. It takes a lot of watchfulness. And you just never know how costly an unguarded moment might be. You might get away with one or two or 10 or 12. But if you practice complacency, it's going to catch up with you eventually because your enemy is after you and I'm not trying to scare you in a in a an exaggerated sort of way I'm just saying let's live in reality that there really is an enemy and we ought to be watchful secondly he says stand firm in the faith so get this idea of sort of digging in no retreat no concessions you don't compromise saying you have to dig in, stand firm in the faith. And the faith here is really referring to um, Christian truth, Christian doctrine, the gospel. He's saying that has to be the very essence of what you're clinging to in order to resist the enemy. Now, uh, you may have heard, you know, academics or whatever talk about orthodoxy. Christian orthodoxy. Basically, it's just the idea that there is this body of truth that Christians have believed for 2,000 years. And if you were to deviate from that, those are the essentials. If you're to deviate from that, then you're no longer in the realm of Christianity. Like, it's not Christianity anymore. It's something else. Those essentials, that is the place where we would say if you depart, you would be heretical. You've heard that word as well. If you're promoting something that conflicts with the essentials or Christian orthodoxy, you are in heresy. 
Now here's what's happening today. So 2000, like creeds were written um, hundreds and hundreds of years ago that defined Christian belief, the essentials. You can find that list on our website under beliefs. But what's happened today is a lot of moral codes, ethical codes of conduct that we have from our Bible, those are being made essentials. And they're not. They're commands, if, if they are commands in the scripture, and we are called to obey them, but that's different than what you must believe in order to be in relationship with God. You see the difference there. So I, I think what Paul's getting at here is you have to stand firm in the essentials. And by doing that, then all of the rest of the stuff will be put in order. Because you'll believe something about God's word, that it is God-breathed, that it came from God himself. And if he gives you a command, then of course, because of what you believe about the Bible, you'll live in light of what it says. Does that make sense? Very important that we do not get those two confused. Paul is saying, I want you to dig in to the gospel and that will be important for you to resisting your adversary. So be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Now, this is an interesting phrase because it raises a lot of eyebrows in our contemporary culture. Like we're wondering, is Paul sexist? Is this only for men? Does this have any application to women? Are women supposed to act like men? Like, what's going on here? I think, um, given the context of Corinthians, so if you haven't been here with us along the way, I would encourage you to go back, because we've addressed a lot of uh, masculine and feminine topics over the course of 1 Corinthians. But I think, generally, Paul is addressing a question of maturity. He said himself, remember in 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about when I was a child, I acted like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. So that was a reference of, for him talking about being a man as compared to being a child. So certainly, to act like men in this sense would be to grow up, to act mature but I can't get away from the fact that he says, act like men. He didn't say, act like women. And wouldn't it be different if he said, hey, everybody, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like women. I don't say that as a joke. I mean, seriously, we would have something different come to our mind that would not be better or worse than masculinity, but it would be different, wouldn't it? We would think femininity, what, what is precious and valuable and honorable and important about that? But he didn't say that. He said, act like men. And, and that should address an idea, and there's actually a, a, a word associated with the Greek word here, and that is masculine courage. There was something about being a man in the context of spiritual war and his calling to spiritual leadership that would require courage. 
And so I do think that Paul here is addressing, perhaps even confronting, a masculine tendency toward passivity. And the guys in this room know what I'm talking about. And I do too. <laughs> so I, when I read these words, men, it's good for me. Because there is so much in me that wants to be complacent, that wants to check out, that wants to retreat or let somebody else take care of it. But I can't escape Paul's words here. Men act like men. And that means that you lay down your life in love for the mission of God, the people of God. And I'll bet you every woman in this room would say amen to that. Finally, be strong. Be strong. Um, I'm not trying to be all scholarly here, but there are things here that are, are helpful from a grammar perspective or language perspective. So this statement here is in the present passive imperative. So what that means is this isn't, hey, toughen up and be strong. Because if we've been following through Corinthians, they already think they're strong, don't they? They think they got it going on. This actually has the idea, because it's a, a passive, it means be strengthened. Let God make you strong. It's not within you without him. So it, it's not this hard charging, pull it all together and make it happen. It's be so humble, be so aware of your deficiencies and your need that you will cling to the sufficiencies of God and thereby be strengthened in that. Paul prayed in Ephesians 3 that God the Father, according to the riches of his glory, would grant them to be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being. That's the picture. When he says be strong, that's what he's talking about. Be strengthened by the provisions that God has made for you that you would not possess without him. Now, lest we kind of get all charged up after those imperatives about watchfulness and standing firm and all that, I love in verse 14 that it's followed immediately by let all that you do be done in love. Isn't that great? The aim here is to have our motive for all of those things and everything else that God has commanded to be fueled by love. And of course, we don't love without understanding how we have been loved first, right? So it's very important that we saturate our minds, like wash our thinking with the love of God so that that's, that's clear to us. Then it frees us up to love others well. Just going back to 1 Corinthians 13, I encourage you to, to review that. But there was a statement that Swindoll gave us out of that chapter, and it was everything minus love equals a noisy nothing. 
everything, anything, all of it, without love, is a noisy nothing. You and I, at our best, the very best version of you, without love, is a big zero. It's that important. And without love, the church, we're left with dead humanistic religion that is parading as Christianity. And the world sees it, and the enemy loves it. We can't get around this. Jesus himself said that this would be the one thing that a watching world would see and then they would know those are God's people. When they love each other well, when they live out love, that is the greatest evidence on earth that God is real, that Jesus Christ is the Savior, and that this book is true. Let all, not some, let all that you do be done in love. So the first thing we have to do if we are going to live well behind the enemy lines is maintain a wartime mentality. Secondly, we need to reinforce servant leadership. Reinforce servant leadership. Uh, look with me at verse 15 and following. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So Stephanus and his household played a very prominent role in the start and the earliest years of the church in Corinth. Now, technically, they're just so, like, I don't want you to read somewhere that somebody said, oh, I don't know if Stephanus was actually literally the first convert in all of that region. It was a pretty big region. There were some other cities where Paul planted churches and people came to Christ. I think the idea here, as far as I can tell, is really more of a significance related to being first. In other words, no one in Corinth could think about the establishment of that church without thinking of Stephanus and his household. That all that took place there in terms of its very earliest foundation, it had something to do with him. Not only that, but when he and his household came to Christ, they immediately, the, the impression here is, they went to work. They're like, this is real. This consumes my life. I will give God everything that I have for his mission. And, and everybody would have known that. Nobody would have denied it. And yet, as the church progressed along the way, and as it became what we have seen it to be in the book of 1 Corinthians, the church turned on Stephanus. Because he was a reminder of the gospel and what it required. And they didn't want that. They wanted to do their own thing, they wanted to be promoted for themselves. 
And uh, he stood in the way of that. Apparently, he kept reminding them of the gospel. And it's very likely that Stephanus was one, perhaps among others, who came to Paul with news of Corinth and where things were. And that was what prompted this letter to begin with. I want you to notice here it says that uh, Stephanus and his household devoted themselves. That is literally to set themselves aside for this work. It is certainly about commitment, but the difference here is uh, they submitted themselves to the church in service. And remember that what we have seen from other leaders within the church of Corinth is they were promoting themselves. You see the difference? See, they're looking for popularity and power, prestige. They want to run the show. I don't think Stephanus cares at all where he is in the organization. I think he's just saying, Lord, have me. However you want to put me to work, I'll do it. But I will be watchful. I'll stand firm in the faith. I'll act like a man and I'll be strong. And I'll let everything that I do be done in love. Just put me to work. And so Paul is pointing to him and he's saying in light of who he and these other men are and in light of how they have served, here's how you respond to that. Be subject and give recognition. Now, one of the things I love about this is Stephanus isn't the one asking for that. In fact, I just think he was just faithfully going about whatever it was that God called him to do. So Paul steps in. He says, hey, guys, listen, you have a leader among you, and he probably won't ask for this for himself, but I'm going to tell you what's best for you is to be subject and to give him recognition. And that's not just empty praise. It, we probably need to think of recognition more as affirmation. Like, good work. Thank you for serving. Here's how what you're doing is affecting my life and my family. Does that make sense? Like, he, he's asking for them to support their leaders. And this is... No different than what we find in other places. Let me give you a couple of passages. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. See, the world, which, remember, is under the rule of our adversary, it's all about competition. It's all about winning. It's all about having control. But when you come into the confines of the church, the body of Christ, that all ends. We're not trying to get a position. <laughs> We're trying to serve each other and build up the church and reach the world. That's a huge difference between inside and outside. So respect and esteem, all that is is just to say, I see you for how God is using you and I'm thankful for that. I want to affirm that and support that. 
And then I, I'm trusting that as I'm using my gifts and doing what God's called me to do, there'll be people that will come alongside me. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. See, leaders understand that their position, if it's been given to them by God, isn't for their own benefit. They're going to give an account for it. To him who much is given, much is required. So leadership isn't something to aspire to for your own ego. It's a calling. And uh, I would say good leaders understand that and don't take that lightly. Finally, Philippians 2.29 says, receive him, he was speaking of Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. So in the church, leaders are given by God, they do not promote themselves, and they are recognized by his people. And you'll know a good leader when you see them serving with humility for the good of the body and the mission. Lastly, the third thing we need to do in order to live well behind enemy lines in this spiritual war that we are a part of, we need to earnestly cherish fellow followers of Christ. Earnestly cherish fellow followers of Christ. Beginning in 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, that's also um, Priscilla, um, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Basically, he was just authenticating that this letter is really from me and not somebody else. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. So very quickly, there's a word that stands out there that might seem kind of insignificant. Greetings from here, greetings from there. They greet you, I greet you. We're all greeting one another. So why does he do that? Why does he use that word five times in just a few verses? Do you remember how isolated and independent this church was? Kind of like they're the center of the universe. They don't need anybody and nobody needs them. Isn't it interesting how Paul steps in here, kind of breaks through their shell of independence and says, hey, just a reminder, you're not all by yourself in this. In fact, the kingdom of God is bigger than you could ever imagine. So I'm going to bring a little kind of tangible reality to you. There's churches all over Asia, and by the way, they greet you. This uh, Aquila and Priscilla, who they would have known, they were in Corinth at some point along the way. They have a house church somewhere else, and, and they send you greetings. All the brothers... Who, I, I don't even know who all that is, but they all send you greetings. He, he's trying to help them see that they are a part of something far bigger 
than themselves. And this greeting word really conveys fondness. It's the idea of cherishing somebody. It's not, this isn't just a flippant, cordial way to end a letter. He, he's really trying to convey that we are in deep relationship. And when I greet you, that means something. Now, how do we know that? The holy kiss. Now, I realize we don't do that around here, right? That's okay. I think that was a cultural thing. But think about this. Maybe there's some application here. If you've got a beef with somebody and you show up and Paul said, greet one another with a holy kiss, it might be a little challenging. But I am confronted with my relational tension. Or maybe I was talking about somebody behind their back and supposed to greet them with a holy kiss, which is with fondness. I'm to cherish them as a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ. We're family. So if I actually put that into practice, it makes it a lot harder for me to get away with isolation, independence, mean-spiritedness, that kind of stuff. So Paul is confronting them with their independence. I thought of, uh, I mean, my children, they were always perfectly behaved all of their childhood. No, when they, when they would get in uh, conflict with one another, there were times when it's like we'd sit them down face to face. It's like, hug it out, boys. Right? And they're like, oh, I saw a great picture of a big brother and a little brother, and it looks like the big brother's about to basically suffocate the little brother. He's like, hugging it out over here. The little brother's going, help me. <laughs> now, that, I think that's what that is. Paul knows what's going on in Corinth. And he's like, I'm going to require you to hug it out because you need to be living in fellowship with one another because you're at war. And if you're divided against one another, you don't have a chance. You won't make it. He does say something pretty startling with this, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That's the anathema. That's pretty serious. And then follows it right up with, our Lord come. Sounds a little bit schizophrenic there. Um, but you know what I think he's doing there is he's just saying we're behind enemy lines we're in the midst of a war and here's the deal there are real casualties for how you and I think about the Lord and I don't this isn't like you lose your salvation this is if you don't have the love of Christ in you you are under the wrath of God that's the reality of the gospel. And so he's, he's saying for everybody to hear, don't forget that. And then the heart of a believer is looking to the day when Christ will return and make all things new and overcome all of the consequences of the curse that we experience behind enemy lines. So it's a beautiful blend of reality around the goodness of the gospel and the truth 
of the gospel. And then he finishes with grace and love. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. I thought about um, one of the saddest times of my entire life. It was just a year after I had become a Christian. And uh, I, I'm prob- I've probably told the story before, but I went off with a wheat harvest crew and we cut wheat from Texas to North Dakota. I was 16 years old, just been a Christian a year. It was one of the saddest summers of my life. I just literally compromised about everything that I had ever held to. And I finished that summer in a tailspin, you know, wondering how, I I knew I became a Christian a year ago, how do I end up here? How had I given up all of these things that I know are important to God and I know are good for me? And I just flushed it all down the toilet. Wondered, maybe I didn't become a Christian. I don't know. So I came back. And uh, I was very involved with Young Life, if you've heard of that, high school ministry. And I remember sitting down with my Young Life leader. And I was scared to death. And I was so ashamed. And I remember looking him in the eye and just telling him what I'd done. And I, I felt like what I deserve is for you to say, sorry, dude, man, the door's over there. That's what I felt like. I really did. And I remember him looking at me and saying, it's going to be okay. I can, I'm, I'll walk with you. You're forgiven. God's grace is sufficient for you. And that was real, that was costly, there are consequences, but you can recover because it was never dependent upon you to begin with. That's the grace of God. That's the scandalous grace of God. And that's what we must have if we're going to live well behind enemy lines. Here's what I want to do to, to finish up this morning for a so what. I want to take us to probably the, the greatest passage about spiritual warfare in our New Testament. It's in Ephesians 6. And it's a place where Paul instructs God's people to put on the armor of God. And I don't know if you do this with any regularity. I don't know, maybe you've never even really looked at this passage, but I'm going to read it to you this morning. And in a posture of prayer, I want you to, to mentally, very tangibly put this armor on this morning. And there may be pieces of it where you're like, I don't, I'm not even quite sure what that's talking about. And that would be a great conversation for you to have with someone to say, hey, I I don't really get this. Can you help me understand? But let's walk through this passage and this will complete our time this morning. So again, just you can close your eyes or look at the ceiling or whatever you need to do, but just listen to these words and, and in your mind, 
attach these pieces of armor to your to yourself. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Can you see it? Enemies all around. You're surrounded. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Not your own truth, not your own version of truth, the truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's not self-righteousness. That is a righteousness that you receive having entrusted your life to Christ. It is the righteousness of Christ that you affix to yourself. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, I don't know what circumstances you're facing today. Take up the shield of faith. Believing that God's grace is sufficient that he loves you beyond what you can even imagine, that he will return one day and make all things right and new. He is preparing a place for you. Those are things of faith. And it is that shield of faith that you can use to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, all the doubts, all the discouragements, all the accusations. Satan is the father of lies. But you gotta have something to extinguish the flaming darts of deception. And take the helmet of salvation. That precious gift that you have been given not out of your own merit, not as a result of works, but as a result of grace. Put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We don't read our Bibles because somehow that makes God happy. We read our Bibles because without it, we would not know what to do. And we would not know what to think or to believe. Finally, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication.
Father in heaven, thank you that you give us all that we need to live well in a world at war with you. Father, I pray that we as a church would live in the reality of this conflict that surrounds us, that we would trust in you in the midst of that, that we would be at rest and still very vigilant watching for the moves of the enemy to uh, trip us up, take us out. And Lord, I pray that we could be an encouragement to each other um, together is better, especially in the battle. So Lord, help us to stand together and fight shoulder to shoulder until you return. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen.